Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by YCharts. They have a new post out called the Earnings Season Playbook, which highlights some of the capabilities on their platform. For instance, you can make alerts to notify you when there are like big earnings surprises and you can do this for your portfolio and a lot of cool stuff in there. We will link to this in the show notes. You can get a seven-day free trial to the product or if you mention Animal Spirits and you're a new user, you can get 20% off. And they actually have pretty good videos in here that actually show you when you're on the site where exactly to go and how to do this. So very helpful. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. So Bloomberg had a story this week that I can't tell if this matters or not, but they say 23% of all equities trading volume happens in the last half hour compared with 18% in 2010. And they also say all told, index and exchange traded funds, quants, and option-related strategies dominate all but 10% of U.S. stock trading. So they actually broke out a chart here that shows how much volume by each half hour of the day. So 9.30 all the way to 3.30, when 3.30 would be the last half hour. And there's a huge spike in volume at the open. and So the first half hour and the last half hour of trading. My question to you is, does this really matter? For who? For most investors. Should they really care? Or, or I guess the other way to look at it is, what can they do to avoid being taken advantage of by these obviously algorithmic trading strategies? Well... Don't place market orders at the open would probably be obvious advice. I think that's that's like the idea. Just don't maybe don't wade into these first and last half hours. That that's probably something that can conserve you well. So they actually talked about how SockGen was trying to create a strategy to take advantage of this. So they said that they would take all they, they have these products that they put on, I think using options or I I don't know exactly what kind of strategy it is, but they take a long or short position on S P futures based on where prices are relative to the previous day's close. If they're higher, the strategy goes long. If they're lower, it flips short. When there's no clear trend, there's no trade. So it's a simple momentum trade. But doesn't it seem like trying to game these type of things is can only end badly? And the, the signals have to go away very quickly in these things? Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe uh, some of these sophisticated strategies can capitalize on this. Obviously, somebody at home should definitely not play this game. We get questions occasionally about are we worried about algorithmic trading and what it can do to liquidity and, and like a crash? I don't think that it really matters because when, when there's a panic, it doesn't really matter what the liquidity is. People just get out at any price. So I don't. this stuff doesn't really bother me that much. I think the point is just don't try to be a high-frequency trader because when you're trying to compete in that on those short of time frames, there are people out there that are going to be much better than you. Did you see the video of the bowling machine? Yes, that just chucked it straight down the down the alley. That's what that's what it's like competing against these high frequency traders. Yes, don't you think that's got to be some sort of foul though? The ball didn't even hit the bowling alley; it just went straight into the pins. Not a bowler. Don't know the rules. Seems like cheating to me. So, in the news this week, two things are dying: one old and one new. And the new one is HQ trivia. Were you ever? Did you get swept up in this mania? Never got into it. I read a few things about it, how huge it became, but I never never. Did anything for me. 
So an article in Tech, TechCrunch, 827,000 downloads from January through June, which is still a ton of downloads, but down 92% from the 10.2 million it saw in the same time in 2018. And get this, its peak valuation, $100 million. So this thing was a public company or no. a private company? No. I mean, okay. I don't think it's public. I don't think it was owned by a public company. Okay. I think it's private. Gotcha. So this thing was a so, fad, obviously. Yes. And then the other thing is Mad Magazine, which I did not know is owned by DC Entertainment, which which owns like the comic DC book. Publishing, and I think that's owned by Warner Brothers, well, which is now owned by, by AT&T. So they are no longer... I think they're going to still publish, but no new material. So did you ever... Were you a Mad Magazine person? I know this is like way before our time, but... No, but it's been around forever, since the 50s probably. So I think that this was the precursor to like SNL and The Onion and all that sort of satire stuff. And it has gone it has gone the way of the baby boomer. Yeah. So what other things are going to leave when baby boomers, the baby boomer generation sort of has their swan song? Banks. Like cold heart, like brick and mortar banks. Yeah. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. You know, I, what, I you know what else I think is going to go away? Whitey tighties. Completely gone when the baby boomer generation goes away. <laughs> that is a very good observation. Don't you think? Like, do you think anyone under the age of fifty-five wears whitey tighties? <laughs> Such male? a funny word. Yeah. Such a great word. <laughs> it is. Everyone has a dad who wears those, but there, there's no way that 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 makes the next generation. So, this is not a new article. I saw somebody tweeted it this morning. Robert Kiyosaki's company is. Kicking around the idea of bankruptcy, it looks like. Ah, that's after the Market Watch profile of him called he called himself a genius because he owns gold. What do we think? Did you ever read that book, Rich Dad Poor Dad? It was like the first money book that I read. I know a lot of people like it. I mean, it's obviously made up. That stuff didn't happen, right? I mean, okay. So, can somebody do bad and also do good? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, like think about how many people read this book and was like, "Oh, you know what? This makes sense to me. I get it." And I don't know how this book is aged because I read it when I was probably 16. Yeah. But the alleged uh, complaints are that they owe $23 million that they're not paying and they have $400 million in revenue. So I don't know what's going on there. But My guess is this guy wrote a book. He wrote like a parable of how to think about money and it resonated with people. And then he said, all right, I'm cashing in on this. And he he puts on seminars and he writes books with Donald Trump and he talks about gold and silver and he calls for market crashes and he just decided to cash in. I'm sure he does a lot of speaking events. Is he, is he the Joel Osteen of personal finance? That sounds that sounds reasonable. Yeah. I mean, if you ever read some of his stuff about his thoughts on the markets and it, he's way, way out there. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. So and obviously the book is made up, but yeah, you're right. It probably helped some people get into the right mindset. But I, it's, when I read it, I was thinking, okay, there's no way this happened. He made it up, which is fine. It was a, I think it's a parable. Yeah, for, for simple finance stuff, I, I would much, much, much uh, be more likely to recommend The Wealthy Barber. Okay, I actually never read that one. You probably don't need to because it's like very, very basic, but it's well done. Okay. So the Federal Reserve data website, Fred released a new data series, which for people like us, this is... Was it was it manipulated? It's all manipulated, right? So they did the share of wealth held by different cohorts. So they showed 
from 1989 to today. I guess it was 2017 was the last reading. Or when? I guess it was quarter Q1 2019, sorry. Share of total wealth held by people in the top 1% is like 31%. The top 90th to 99th percentile is 39%. 50th to 90th percentile is like 29%. And bottom the bottom 50 holds about 1.3% of wealth. So the top 1% only hold 31% of the wealth? That think, sounds low. You think that's low? Well, if you think about the top... Look at it this way. The top 10% holds 70% of the wealth. Okay. I guess the awful thing that stands out is the bottom 50%. Yes. And I'm guessing the fact there is that liabilities just completely overwhelm any sort of assets there, and it kind of cancels it out really quickly, but... They don't have any assets. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. It's it's all so. I'm saying anyone in that cohort who has assets is completely overwhelmed by everyone else who just has liabilities with no assets. I don't. I don't. What else? I I I don't know what to make of these numbers. Sometimes you can see some changes since the 90s, and the the biggest change is probably like an increase for the top one percent and a decrease for the bottom fifty. But it's, it's not a huge decrease, but. I don't. I just. Well, maybe is this is this sort of the middle class disappearing because fiftieth to ninetieth went from about forty percent down to twenty eight percent. Yeah, that's probably a good way to look at it. That there's just continues to be this bifurcation between the the very top and the very. Yeah, bottom. this is this is a pretty depressing chart. Um, so there was a big article out from Vox about what's going on with Walmart and their e commerce, and they have revenue of around. 21 to 22 billion, but they're projecting losses of a billion dollars. And that sort of losses is only reserved for companies like Amazon. But you know what's interesting? So we'll get to some of the numbers in a second, but this paints a pretty bleak picture of what's going on in their e commerce division. But the company, at least the stock, looks fantastic. Are we talking technical analysis? Fantastic. I'm just calling it as it is what it is. Listen, it is what it is. Okay. So, I mean, obviously. Amazon basically forced them into a money-losing proposition. Like, they had to do this. So Amazon accounts for 38% of online retail. Walmart is just 4.7%. And inside of Walmart, their e-commerce represents just 5% of the, of the entire U.S. business. So what Walmart did recently was they announced a push to offer free next-day shipping on up to 220,000 items with no membership fee. And then Amazon said, okay... Prime members, you get one-day shipping. And you, you asked me a few weeks ago if I was getting one-day shipping. Right. And I just noticed that I ordered socks. They were there the next day. And you know what? Let me give a plug. Under Armour socks, fantastic. Okay. I, I guess I never really do name brand socks. I'm not, a, I'm not a brand snob like you. so I'm not a brand snob either, but I am a company like snob. Them? Okay. And you know what? Let's get into that if you're, if you're brand snob shaming me. Okay. So you wrote a piece about cars. Yes. And then you, sub, you sub-blogged me. I did. But I really didn't. But I kind of did. I know. Because you weren't, you weren't spend shaming people. But there are so many articles about this person makes that and, and just all this sort of shit. And we're all guilty of it because I, like, I see people with nice cars and like where the car doesn't match the house. You right. know, it's like a... A reasonable house, whatever, 1,500 square feet, and they drive like a Maserati. Yes. And it's just like, wait, what? And you can't help but think to yourself, you know, we're always counting other people's money. I think it's just like human nature. But the explosion of articles 
has just reached a boiling point. And unfortunately, I think it's just going to keep getting hotter. Yes. My point was just, if you're having trouble saving money and you also drive a really nice car, like that's one place that, that's just staring you in the face in your budget for a, an easy place to cut back that you could save a few hundred dollars a month that could be then rolled right into savings. So that was kind of I my guess point. my point was like, it's just, it's so tiring seeing people with money tell other people what they should do. Like Susie yes. Orman said, you need $5 million to retire. And Kevin O'Leary is saying, don't get a $3 cup of coffee, but he spends $30 on a haircut and he's freaking bald. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Those, those or $300 those are... on a haircut or whatever it is. Like, get out of here. Yes. Honestly, at, at that stage, those people should just stick to motivational quotes. Like, that's what they're there for, right? Yeah. Post, post an Instagram picture with a sunset and someone walking on the beach and a quote by Einstein or something. And like, that should be your lane at that point. Because you're so out of touch that it doesn't even it doesn't even register anymore. So, all right. Earlier, you spoke about what might go away with with boomers. So, our big our banks are big short again. And now, listen. Also, I will say technically they look good here. <laughs> so, this is not a short term call. Okay. Is this is but this your next trade? There was an article in the journal. Open a checking account at Citigroup, and you may get a free Costco membership and a subscription to Amazon Prime, and several months of Hulu or Spotify. It seems as if the rewards for banks are getting bigger and bigger because they must make up for it in other places. Like They're just scrambling for ideas. And I wonder if fintech and companies like Venmo and PayPal, or I guess, does PayPal own Venmo? I think they do. I'm not sure. But if these companies are just... I, th- I think the biggest misstep banks are making is the stuff that we talk about with savings accounts. I don't know why they've decided to like. I feel like there could be a huge exodus. Well, maybe not an exodus. Well, well here's older why. People, but young people. Here's why. All young people are going to go into these online banks, and maybe that's why Goldman is one of the smarter ones that actually is getting ahead of this. You're absolutely right, and there's numbers to back you up. According to the article, just four percent of Americans switched their primary bank accounts last year. Right, inertia. So that's why there's what nine trillion dollars in these low interest accounts. Right. But for people under forty that rate jumped to 9%. So younger people, anti-boomers, are quicker to switch. So, like, I mean, eventually Robinhood or something like that is going to have an interest-bearing checking account and a decently high online savings account. One of, these, one of them is going to figure out. Maybe it is Goldman since they changed to a bank back in the crisis or whatever. And I don't think this is necessarily going to happen, but what if Amazon or Google gets into financial services? That'd be great. I would totally sign up for for their stuff probably because I'm sure that they would do it much better and make things more efficient as well. So moving on, Tadas Visconta, our colleague who runs a blog, Abnormal Returns, did a post where he collected a bunch of people's opinions on is value dead? And there was an article or a post from Vanguard looking at different factor returns in different environments. And one of the conclusions, and we'll link to this in the show notes, is that value does exceptionally well in bear markets. The other the other one I've seen, Bernstein originally wrote about this, was that value actually does better in higher inflation environments. And the fact that we've had low inflation has been something that has hurt value stocks. So this has been like the perfect storm for value not working. Yeah, I, I think it... Yeah, I mean, that that's always a... Anytime something doesn't work, you want to have a perfect storm go against you, I suppose. But maybe it's just these things are cyclical and value worked for a really long time and now it's not. So definitely blog post of the year. And I don't even know if you could call this thing a blog post, what Jesse Livermore did. 
this like this basically asked and answered all the big questions in finance. It was I think this took me two hours to read. I, I did it on an airplane ride. It was a, yeah, it was a long one. So I mean, there, you know, there's so many good things in here, but one chart that stood out to me was valuation versus return over time horizons, and it seems to to be that valuations don't matter in the short run or in the really long run, and there's yeah, sort of a sweet a spot that, and looking on different valuation metrics, the sweet spot is around ten to twelve years. Well, the other part I liked about it was how inflation kind of explains some of history's really low valuations. And some people say like, well, if we ever get back to the 1980 valuation levels, like that can't really happen again unless inflation interest rates go bananas. And and so like it's a it's a good explainer as to how valuations have shifted over the years and they're not just this static thing. They depend on the environment. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Question for you. Okay. There was an article in Financial Planning, low volatility funds have taken in nearly 12 billion dollars more than double that of any other factor this year. So the question is, is this just performance chasing? Or do you think it's possible that low vol as a concept is a very, very easy sell to clients, especially given where we are in this quote-unquote cycle? Yeah, maybe a little of both. So we, we talked to Invesco a couple weeks ago about there on our Talk Your Book about factor investing and how I, I thought low vol is one of the most misunderstood ones. And maybe it's maybe it's kind of having its day in the sun where it's becoming more understood and people can explain it a little better. And if you want to take some risk, maybe you should do it in the low volatility variety going forward if you're worried about what happens in stocks. And, and your point in that interview with Vincent was, well, what are you going to lose? 3% less than the overall market? Is that really going to help you in a 40% bear or whatever? But... <laughs> The point remains, I think there are probably, like, couldn't low vol be a great selling point to baby boomers that are yeah. retiring? Yeah. I, yeah. Makes sense to me. So we've been speaking a lot about student loans lately. It's sort of a hard topic to avoid given that it's, it's been in the news so much with the potential Democratic candidates in 2020. And we, we asked a question like, so we showed a chart last, last week that showed student loan debt exploding and what has driven that. So it was a law under the Obama administration. Hey, and sorry, they basically, isn't it, sorry to, isn't it great how we put this stuff out there and we say, we have no idea why this is the case, and we get 10 people that tell us exactly what yes. the reasoning for it? Fantastic. So the idea was basically to cut out the middlemen, another reason why banks might be another big short. So they projected that it would, it would save $68 billion over the next 11 years. And I guess the lending institutions use this as like a, a, a free money backstop. But the question is, why are rates, let's see. So in 2011, it said that the loans will be lent to students at 6, 6.8% interest. Why is that the case? Why are rates so high? That's the thing that I don't get. It sounds, and so our colleague Bill Sweet did a did like a 20 thread tweet storm on this. And he kind so, of- I'm sorry, just let me just put this quote in here real quick. It said money, so this is an article from Huffington Post, and we'll put all this in the show notes. Money for the program will come from the U.S. Treasury, which will lend it to the Education Department at 2.8% interest. The money will then be lent to the students at 6.8%. Eliminating the middlemen will allow the Education Department to keep its 4% spread as profit. So the Education Department should wipe out middle lo- uh, all these loans, right, I not don't- the American taxpayer. Yeah, it sounds like this... It was sort of a law of unintended consequences where this went wrong, but I I agree with you. I don't still see why do they need to have such a high spread. It doesn't make any sense why they are trying to make money off of 
Like that's shouldn't that be the first step in this thing? Instead, before we go wipe it all out, let's just drop everyone's rates to to as low as we can. I mean, I don't. Why can't they just, you know, hit a button and do that right away? And if if they're keeping the four percent, why don't they make this an ETF and let investors get some yield? Because <laughs> we've yeah exactly we've seen these stories of people that pay like a minimum amount and they, and some of them don't realize that they're paying like they're not even paying down any principal. And so after 10 or 20 years, their balance is not much smaller than it was when they started. It's like if you wipe out the interest on that in a lot of ways, that takes care of these problems where we have these outlier events in this stuff. So sticking with the, the, the idea that we have great listeners who send us these things, somebody sent us this. And we've, we've said many times, maybe to listeners' detriment, that, oh, the average balance isn't that much. right? The average balance is, is a manageable $25,000 or whatever the number is. So if somebody wrote, to us, it's true that having 30 to 50K isn't much and in theory should be able to be paid down. But with the rise of income driven repayment plans, many people are paying less than their interest accrual. This is the negative amortization problem. I talk to people regularly who say some version of, I keep paying every month and my balance goes nowhere. I've seen plenty of cases where people were steered into an income driven plan, not knowing what it would do to their long term total repayment costs. And by the time they change course, end up having to pay way more than they ever took out. This is bad. He said, worst example was a case where a couple had a total of 160 were on income-driven plans because they each made 50000 per year. Over about seven years, their incomes have risen substantially. And despite paying $1,800 a month for the last three years, their balances had grown so much to two hundred twenty k that the $1,800 were still barely covering interest. Yeah. this, Ouch. And, and obviously, the higher interest rate is the problem there. And obviously, maybe not understanding these the payment terms here and how they set it up. But that's kind of crazy that this is even allowed. Why would they even allow people to do this? Don't know. So a few weeks ago, everybody was talking about the inverted yield curve. And it sort of went away because I guess stocks regained all-time highs and all was copacetic. But Oddstats tweeted a chart, as Bespoke uh, Invest pointed out, the 10-year, three-month yield curve has now been inverted for 30 straight days. And he shows where this happened on the chart previously. Take a look. Dot, dot, dot. Peak and peak. Yeah. This happened in 2000 and in 07. All right. So it's been nice knowing you. La- uh, two weeks ago, I made the comment that life hacks are bullshit, but there was that really cool video showing like peeling basil and shrimp and taking pineapple apart. So I tried that pineapple hack. Didn't work. Total disaster. Yeah. I seen one about taking off the shell of a hard boiled egg. And there's this video of it where you like, you somehow blow on it to get it off. You put a little hole and blow, and it perfectly comes off in the video. And I tried it; didn't work at all. Yeah, was that a magic pineapple? Yeah, I don't. So maybe the problem is you have to put in your ten thousand hours before you get to the life hack stage. So Tom Serafagus from Bloomberg had an amazing chart. Amazing chart. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about hedge funds and should they be available to the public because there are so many products that are just destined to burn investors' money, like a lot of the three-time levered ETFs. And so what he showed was current assets versus lifetime flows. So the top cash-burning ETF sponsors. And the, the worst defender on this list was ProShares. Not near the worst was Direction, which is synonymous with these ETFs. I was pretty surprised by that. So it says ProShares has $31 billion in current assets, but $55 billion in lifetime flows meaning investors have lost $24 billion in these funds. So these are the 
double, triple levered ETFs? Is that the that's the problem? Yeah, I guess I just thought this direction was the biggest, but not even close. Okay. Who do you think is trading these things? So that's that's almost half of the money that has come into them has been just lit on fire, it looks like. Well, I just want to make the point that this is absolute dollars. It's not like a percentage of flows or anything. But who is trading these? Honestly, I, I, I think it's just day traders. Like I don't necessarily think that it's big money doing this, do you? Uh, I mean, I, I got to imagine sometimes there's hedge funds that, that try to use this stuff for short-term positions, but... Yeah, to like hedge short-term positions. I don't know. Okay. Listen, it wasn't me. All right. <laughs> Not anymore. So a good marketing thing that I saw. So that shirt that I bought on Instagram a few weeks ago that doesn't quite fit my body. Yeah. So I tried to return it. It was twenty. It was $29. So they said, if I just get something else from the store, they'll give me a $10 bonus. They'll give me $38. So I said, you know what? No thanks. I'm just going to return it. So I clicked return, and then there's a $10 handling fee. <laughs> so I only get $18 back. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Fine. I'll just buy something at the store. But there's nothing that's like in between $29 and $39. So it's like $29 or $65. So they got gotcha. you. So now I'm just stuck with this shirt. Do you want it? It might fit you very nicely. <laughs> all right. We'll try it at our next meetup. All right. Matt Levine. He's the John Oliver of finance. That's a good way to look at it, of Bloomberg. So he, he wrote a post about good investors make investing harder. Okay. And it perfectly summarized the current environment of index, passive money leaving and it just getting harder on active managers who set the prices and we're all free, free riding. It's still early in the month, so I can actually read this article on my Bloomberg free article list so, limit, so I'm good to go. I just finished my last free one today. All right. I have seven free remaining. Uh, did you see this article about... A crypto derivative market? No, hit me with it. Now, admittedly, this is it's very it's a tiny market, so it doesn't really matter, but it's just hilarious. GSR, a cryptocurrency trading firm led by former Goldman Sachs commodity traders. They're so they're structured products in Bitcoin, obviously. These include variant swaps, which pay out for their buyers if Bitcoin's volatility increases, and binary options, which pay out either a fixed sum or nothing, depending on whether Bitcoin trades above or below a specified price. I don't especially when it gets down to like retail level. I mean, has there ever been a structured product that's worked for someone? That's, the issuers. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there have been. And maybe I'm off here because I'm not like well-versed in these things. But we used to look at these all the time at the endowment I looked at. And they all seemed so complex and difficult to understand. And the prospectuses were 200 pages. I just can't imagine that these things ever really work out for anyone the way that they assume they would. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they are structured for a specific market event. And if that event doesn't occur or that scenario doesn't occur, these things are not going to work out for you. That's my that's my theory. Did you listen to... So you've been paying attention to all the basketball stuff? Yes. It's pretty wild. The league has turned upside down. And 2019 is what seems like going to be... I guess the 2020 season is going to be the most anticipated one in a long, long time. Don't you think whenever they have their next bargaining power, whatever the, the rights deal or whatever comes up between the owners and the players... The owners are going to get really mad and say, like, we can't have this anymore. Like, if you were a small team owner, you've probably made a lot of money on the value of your team, but would you be really happy with the way things are going and the fact that these players can just go wherever they want, whenever they want? I don't think there's any putting the uh, the toothpaste back in the tube on this one. So Jared Dudley, journeyman, now on the Lakers, was on the Woj podcast, and he said something along the lines, like, I already made my money. So I checked it out. He's made $57 million. That's in not, his career. Not bad. 
57 million. And also, so Woj is like this massive brand now. He has three and a half million followers on Twitter. He, I was trying to, I said the other day, if he was a hedge fund manager, how much would he, his tweets move the market? Five or 10%? Any, anytime he, put, he puts out something huge? So I was wondering, like, is, is the value of him accruing to him and his brand or to ESPN? Like, what value do they get out of having him under their umbrella? I don't get it either. Just the fact that they have him. Right. Does it matter if he's with Yahoo or ESPN? I don't, I don't think so. I don't really care. I'm not going to tune into ESPN to watch him. Right. So I read a book this week called uh, Blockbusters, Hitmaking, Risk-Taking, and the Big Business of Entertainment. Patrick O'Shaughnessy recommended it. And uh, it's all about how the entertainment business works, how brands work, how basically this, this Woj stuff. And it was very interesting. One tidbit in the book that is totally relevant, but just timely given the, the show. So Maria Sharapova's parents moved out of Russia or where she was living because of the Chernobyl disaster. Oh, really? And where they moved, I think she happened to see, or Martina Navratilova saw her and made an introduction or something, something, something. Wow, that's pretty crazy. And now she sells candy and makes millions of dollars. Yes. Oh, last thing. You wrote in your spend shaming post that there are probably more wealthy people driving a Honda than a Mercedes. Yes. And I, I think I actually saw that stat recently. That's, that's a true thing. I, I just kind of made it up. But doesn't it, don't you think it makes sense? Maybe I saw it in your blog post that I'm making it up that I saw it, but I really do think I saw it. And yes, I do think it makes sense. Okay. I mean, that's like the you've, if you've read The Millionaire Next Door, you, like, they go through the kind of cars they drive, and they usually don't typically drive luxury cars. And obviously, the super ultra-rich, they can probably drive whatever they want and be fine. But I think the, the regular Millionaire Next Door probably doesn't always have a luxury car like you would think. All right. Anything else before some listener questions? Nope. Oh, let's get to it. All right, I was wondering if either of you have any weird personal savings milestones or recognize them. Not the usual like $100,000 in retirement accounts, but something like you now currently save more per year than you spend or your retirement accounts are worth more than your remaining mortgage principal. Please tell me I'm not the only one who does this. This is there's not really a question. Well, they're asking are there any savings milestones that we recognize? No. So I would say I don't there's nothing weird that I I would say the one thing that I think people should strive for is just save more money than you saved the year prior. I think that's a really worthy goal. Either up your spending rate or, or, your, or sorry, your savings rate and, or up increase the absolute amount of money that you're saving each year. I think that's a really worthy goal that people could. I, I, I think that most people don't really have a grip on exactly how much they're saving. Like I know that I don't, but, but my savings is automatic. So I guess I don't, so it's like out of sight, out of mind. But I couldn't tell you like exactly how much I was saving a month. I think it's yeah, I think it's probably a moving target for people too. They hit like there's certain amounts that you save that five year, ten years ago you would have thought would have been insane and now they're you're like, Well, I, I need to save more. So I think it's for most people it's probably a moving target. And so it's probably hard to sit back and until you got to that certain point where you're uh, totally off the grid and you have the F U money, then there's always more to be saved, I think, for most people. All right. I can't tell if this is a real this is real or fake, but I wanted to see if you guys had a hot take on this. Should I A attend the WealthStack conference and actually learn about financial advisory services and the tech available? Or B attend a golf Wait, wait, wait. He's, he he did say thanks for the hundred dollar code oh, off. Thanks for the hundred dollars code off, which we had. And we will week. we will link to that in the show notes. Hundred dollars off WealthStack. Or instead of attending WealthStack, attend a golf tournament for a really good cause hosted by my wirehouse firm where I currently hate working at a really nice golf course, and have a chance to bring in new business. A will help my career long-term and solidify my desire to move to the RIA side, 
but B could, but not guaranteed, help my current job by bringing in new assets. Uh, well, that's not going to happen. Yeah, well, I think we're probably a little biased here in that we'd probably say WealthTech, but I mean, I think this kind of comes down to like how serious this person is about moving to the other side of the business. Because if you're going to constantly go to the golf tournaments and try to raise cash instead of figuring out how to move out of that side of the business that you hate working in, then you're probably, it's probably never going to happen for you. Yes. And WealthSec is a great way to rub elbows with a lot of heavy hitters in the industry. So, All right. So who do we got for speakers? I got the list here. Top of the page, Michael Batnick, Director of Research, Rich Holtz Wealth Management. <laughs> so we got Danny Fava, who's the Director of Innovation at TD Ameritrade. Allison Schrager, who's a book that we've both recommended here. She's going to be doing a talk on her book. Doug Bonaparte, who is a head guy and one of the guys on Fintuit. Justin Costelli. Joe Duran, who is the CEO and founder of United Capital, which is just bought by Goldman. So I'm really excited about that. Our friend Dan Egan, who is uh, at Betterment. Patrick O'Shaughnessy is going to be giving a great presentation that we kind of have an idea on, which is sort of surprisingly cool. Peter Malouk, who's the head of creative planning. Cheryl Penny at Dynasty Financial Partners, who was just on the Michael Kitsis podcast not too long ago. And is probably one of the biggest ballers in all of wealth management that not many people know about. I could go down the list. There's, there's many more people here. But there's a lot of really heavy hitters in the wealth management space. And I think in the past, a lot of conferences hit on big like investment people, like macro ideas and huge hedge fund and private equity people. And those things usually don't get you much. And, and a lot of those people you can probably listen to on a podcast anyway these days. But these so people like Kyle are all- Bass will not be speaking. <laughs> no, we won't be hearing his... Maybe he could talk about the, the big short for banks, which you could you know, sort of help on to. It's a uh, longer term play. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't know. If this person really needs money, go to the golf tournament. But if you really want to change, sure, come to the conference and talk to us. All right. Any recommendations? Uh, well, that Blockbusters book that I just mentioned had some good stuff in there. Econ Talker with Russ Roberts had a really interesting interview with a doctor, Adam Sifu. And he asked a great question. Should evidence come with an expiration date? And I thought there were a lot of obvious parallels to investing with that. So that was good. I'd recommend that, that one. Okay, I read it. I kind of finished in the last few weeks a couple of books on happiness. So one of them is How Will You Measure you okay? Life? What? Do you need an intervention? No, I'm good. <laughs> I, a lot of times I don't really like reading these books because I feel like a lot of times it's it's from really successful people that are trying to tell you how, how they achieved happiness. But I, I kind of like he- hearing examples from other people. So Clayton Christensen wrote this book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And a few people actually recommended this one. And he, he kind of told it, I think he, he did a commencement speech at a university and he turned it into a book. And he actually, he's the business professor from Harvard who writes a lot about disruption. And he kind of talked about like happiness in your career and your life through the lens of disruption in businesses. It was actually kind of an interesting way to look at it. And then I also finished The Algebra of Happiness by Scott Galloway, which was, which was very good because he is so just blatantly honest about seemingly everything. And so I thought that was, he had some good... That, that was definitely a good one for people who are just getting out of college, which is kind of the audience he was looking for. He's also the head coach of the Knicks Summer League. I don't know if you knew that. Is that what he looks like? Google Jeb Bushler. Okay. Okay. He was a player, right? Of Chicago Bulls, yes. Are you, are you really watching Knicks Summer League games? Yes. Oh, pathetic. <laughs> Sorry. I, I mean, the Knicks, not you. The... Yeah. Okay. So halfway through the second season of Big Little Lies, did you ever get into that show? Nope. I liked the first season. It was really good. The second season, if you haven't started it yet, I'm going to keep watching, but eh, it's, uh, it's a bunch of really good actors and actresses and good performances, but there's been like one good episode, and it's just kind of boring, and I think it, it was one of those shows that 
should have been a one season deal and they should have not done another one, I think. I could be proven wrong. Did you watch Dead to Me? Dead yes, I did I did like that one. So Robin watched like three episodes and I caught in, I, I hopped in for the fourth and fifth, and then she just finished the rest without me. I thought it was okay. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was decent, not great. Like if you need yeah. something, it was I thought it was a pretty entertaining one. It was pretty good. So let's see, I, yeah, I got nothing else. I didn't do much TV watching or reading over the holiday weekend. And all right, anything else we got good today? That's it. All right, send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Check both of our websites. We'll have a code for 100 bucks off of Wealthstack, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.